Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This is part two of our interview with George Leopold, who wrote Gus Grissom's biography entitled Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom. It was initially published by Purdue University Press in 2016, and a paperback edition was released in 2019. In this podcast, co-hosts Eleanor O'Rangers and Tom Hill continue their discussion with George exploring the process of researching and writing a biography, the legacy of the Apollo 1 fire which claimed the lives of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, and the elephant in the room, the portrayal of Gus in the 1983 movie, The Right Stuff. Another question I have about the development of this biography is how you created the story and like a lot of the the back research and what it takes to actually put all that together. Um, and I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit of that, because I know you've interviewed, you interviewed astronauts, friends, family members, etc. But um, did you have kind of a structure in your mind of who you wanted to interview when, or did that all kind of organically develop as the story developed over time? Um, and you, you said that you had been working on the the biography for a couple of years before you really really were able to focus on it in earnest. And I'm curious about what was kind of done during that almost like preamble time versus then the focus time that you did a lot of the bulk of the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, much of it is dictated by your ability to, to get through to some of these people and being in Washington, um, you know, going to the Smithsonian to various events, you get, you get a, a crack at talking to some of these people uh one example was was al bean who had a who what 50 years ago tonight he's almost on his way home from the moon right on apollo apollo 12 yep we're in the uh, midst of that season yeah right so you know he he had a, a a show of of his terrific art the only the only astronaut to paint the moon based on personal experience so i was able to to, to cover that and sort of build a relationship with him and 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 we talked and he gave me some great anecdotes that I hadn't heard anywhere else and you know like you guys I think I've heard just about all of them so and Al Warden uh, when his book came out was able to meet him at the Smithsonian so it was sort of dictated by you know if you could find people and get them to to give you an hour of their time and that sort of dictates where the story goes but I think that, uh, you know, I, I always sort of knew where I wanted to go with it. I mean, the, there was a previous biography by uh, uh, Indiana researcher Ray Boomhauer, which is a very good book. I just didn't agree with his thesis. The thesis was, uh, this book was called Gus Grissom, The Lost Astronaut. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't really buy into that. I thought, you know, Gus Grissom wasn't lost. Gus Grissom knew exactly where he was going and how he was going to get there. And that was the story I wanted to tell. So I sort of always knew where I was going, but uh, I, I, ran, I I came across a lot of people who admired Gus. And they admired him 
because he because of his hard work and his dedication and the fact that he'd never you know wanted he didn't want to call attention to himself he just wanted to get the job done and it was quite quite heartening i i, I don't think it's a, a overstatement to say that Gus Grissom was beloved and these people were generous with their time one guy i tracked down was in flight school with him in texas and and he posted these great pictures online of him and Gus in flight school and I thought, wow, these are great. I've never seen these before, but my publisher needs the originals, right? They have to be upconverted. You can't just take photos off the internet. And this and this guy sent them to me. He entrusted them to me, and I had them upconverted. They're in the book, and I sent them back. And he was thrilled. He was he was just he couldn't believe that anybody would be interested in talking to him about uh, the fact that he knew Gus Grissom. So. All of those things you go through this uh, this this process of pulling a book together, and and you come across all these people uh, uh, who are generous, and they're just happy to know that somebody cares about this, and that it's going to be recorded for posterity. Um, after the book came out, I met a, I met a bunch of guys from McDonald, and I was I was I traveled all over Indiana talking about Gus after the book came out, which was a lot of fun. And I pulled into the the uh, Hampton Inn in Jasper, Indiana at 10 o'clock at night. And these four guys from McDonald were sitting in the, you know, the, the, the uh, dining room at the Hampton Inn waiting for me. <laughs> we sat and talked. I checked in and we sat and talked for until two o'clock in the morning. And my God, did those, did those guys have oh, stories about the early days in St. Louis and at the Cape. And uh, and so some of that is in the paperback, and a lot of it will be in Jeff Schussel's book because I put him in touch with uh, uh, Jerry Roberts and uh, Norm Becker and uh, a couple of other guys who, uh, you know, they – they're just trying to keep uh, the, the the memories alive while they can. Some of them are in poor health. Since since I've met some of them, some of them are now gone. But uh, a real pleasure to meet these guys. My God, what a mm. generation! Wow, you know that's actually. I wonder is there has there been a history written of McDonald Douglas? I mean, based you know, with those guys? Yeah, and in, there was a a, a pretty bad in house one written by Mister Max. I think his son. And I found it, and uh, it's yeah, it's there's not a lot in it. It's uh, there's a lot of marketing in it, but uh, yeah, that's probably a book that needs to be done. But um, you know, the other thing, Eleanor, to get back to your question, um, one of the things that's amazing about writing about space is. NASA's got this huge archives of mm. material, right? And much of it's digitized and much of it's uh, searchable. So for I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, I spent a lot of time on this question of pure oxygen in the spacecraft, which is what contributed to the Apollo 1 fire, probably the primary cause besides the bad wiring we mentioned earlier. Well, I was able to track down the original, the very first change order issued by NASA 
change order number one to North American Aviation, the prime contractor on the Apollo command module, saying you will install a single gas pure oxygen system in the Apollo uh, command module. So it was their decision. Nat North American didn't want to do it that way. But I, I could find that document online because so much of this stuff has been, you know, pulled together and organized and it's searchable. And of course, the, 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 as you guys know, all of the great oral histories that NASA has done. So, you know, NASA is not a perfect agency and, uh, they're in the process now of not letting me get access to the spacecraft and some other stuff, which we can talk about. But they did a real—they did a really good job of preserving mm-hmm. this stuff, and uh, you know. So now researchers like my, me are able to sift through it and try to figure out yeah. what it all meant. Now it's it's fortunate that, for better or for worse, it it was a open process. You know that. Uh, I guess it was Eisenhower yeah. mandated that. Yeah. Well, that, you know, and that was that was the big difference between our program and the Soviet program, right? We didn't know what the hell they were doing, and we did everything out in the open, right? I mean, everybody watched Dale and Shepard to see if he would be blown up on national exactly. television. The ultimate reality. Yeah, and we just got word of their successes. Yeah, yeah right. And, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons, uh, you know, the Soviets never used pure oxygen because they'd had an accident in 1961 where one of their astronaut trainees was killed in in a test chamber. But we didn't know that until the, the early 80s. But, uh, the, you know, the, the, the Russians and Korolev never would, would use pure oxygen, oxygen in, in the spacecraft on the launch pad because they knew how dangerous it was. And, you know, we did it, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 times with Mercury and Gemini and got away with it until January 27th, 1967. And uh, we learned a hard lesson that day. But, you know, that's the great, one of the great paradoxes of, of the uh, space race was without the fire, we probably don't get to the moon by the end of the decade. Yeah, what the basic theory on that is that if we hadn't had the fire, it would have come later another block one mission yeah had it happened in orbit there's there's no way they could have traced the source of the problem right but because it happened on the pad they could go in tear the thing apart which they literally did Uh, they ended up cutting the spacecraft in half in fact and they pulled it apart they traced the cause they realized that they'd been playing with fire that pure oxygen under pressure on the pad you know it's you can do it when you're in orbit but when you're on the pad right you got to be incredibly psi instead of uh five right and this stupid hatch that uh that was basically like a cork and ed white was an uh, olympic athlete and they still couldn't get the damn thing out although they tried like hell to get it off and the the combination of that pure oxygen and a spacecraft full of Velcro and all of these other flammable materials and and terrible quality control all through uh, 1966. You know, one of my, one of the uh, the the most revealing lines I found in the NASA archives at the at, at headquarters in D.C. was a comment by Walt Williams, who was one of the key guys in Project Mercury, and he left. Uh, 
I think during Gemini, but uh, he has an unpublished manuscript that I found. And in it, he said that if the Apollo command module, block one command module had been a horse, they would have shot it in 1966 because wow. the thing was a death trap. But they fixed it, right? They fixed it and they put a hatch on it that could be opened in, in three seconds. They fireproofed it. They fixed the wiring. North American was was machine bundling wiring. And there was, God, I don't know, the I think about 30 miles of wiring in the spacecraft that was unprotected. I've seen some, some recent... Uh, footage that's attributed to the National Archives. There's a camera in the spacecraft during a test and it shows Ed White and he's got his suit he's got his pressure suit on. I don't think the hatch is closed. But every time he's trying to hit a switch, he's got this damn oxygen hose in his way. He has to push it over. So it, it just incredible how how crappy the engineering was. And you know Gus had to basically he had to play the hand he was dealt, but they fixed it. After the fire, they fixed it. They realized, holy, holy shit, man, we got human beings who are going to be in this thing, and we got to make sure this doesn't happen again. And that was the turning point in in the space race of the 1960s. That fire changed everything, and they fixed it. And later that same year, of course, they stacked everything on the Saturn V. Uh, even though Werner von Braun didn't want to do it that way, they what was all up testing, right? And Apollo four went off, and they and once once they knew that that rocket would work, pretty much the base the space race was pretty much over. We had won. We had a way to get to the moon. And then it was just a question of pointing it in the right direction and going. God, it's you know it's it's looking back on that being over fifty years ago, almost sixty and you know, going way back, it almost seems apocryphal now, you know, that, God, how did we do that? I mean, that that was just an amazing time. Yeah. The other night uh, uh, I heard uh, John, the, the great space historian, John Logston speak at the Smithsonian, and he said this was like a once in a lifetime thing that, that this president would realize, you know, a president who, who JFK, who really yeah. didn't care much about space, but he did care deeply about American prestige around the world and this battle between, you know, the communist system and the, and the democratic uh, capitalist system in the West and that the space program was highly symbolic. Uh, you know, Sputnik really shook up the technical community and then Gagarin beats us into space and, and he realizes, okay, we must be first in space and it gives these amazing speeches but he doesn't just give speeches he gets the money right the yep. the 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 famous quote from the right stuff and it's attributed to Gus Grissom and I don't know if he actually said it I could never track it down but the the quote was no yeah. bucks no buck rogers and somebody asked John Loxon about well what about these great uh Robotic missions, which are great, but it's, he said, well, you know, they don't throw parades for, for robots. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So you just flip it around, right? It's like yeah. no Buck Rogers, no Bucks. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, compared to today where we, you know, we're talking about Artemis is going to go to the moon by 2024. Well, you know, I think the Senate kicked in another billion dollars 
to NASA's budget for this year, and the House didn't add anything. So uh, back in the 60s, you know, to get back to your point, Honor, NASA was like, I don't know what the percentage was, and almost four, five, six percent of the federal budget. And yeah. today it's the today, I think it's about point four five percent. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, you know, w- without the dough, it's not going to happen, which, of course, leads to a discussion inevitably about what the commercial guys are yeah. doing. Well, I, you know, I'm still rooting for them. So we'll see. Yeah. So yeah, in a in a in a way, it's sort of uh, it's sort of following the same arc as aviation, right? The big event is Lindbergh crosses does does the solo flight across the Atlantic, and it inspires all of these guys who end up becoming astronauts. And then uh, air travel becomes safer, and there you get standards, and pretty soon, you know, you can fly just about anywhere. And 66 years later, we land on the moon. So I guess the question now is whether um, these commercial guys are going to be able to pour enough money into these, into into what they want to do, you know, these aspirational goals to get A, to get back into low Earth orbit and B, to go beyond uh, beyond Earth, you know, to leave the Earth again, which, as Mike Collins says, was the point of Apollo to leave and then come back. Well, speaking of the right stuff, I actually uh, have a question from Emily. She wanted to know about your thoughts about the mischaracterizations of Gus and the right stuff. And and then you're thinking about, are they going to do right by Gus and the new right stuff that's being filmed currently? Tom Wolfe was a great journalist. He was thorough. He talked to everybody. Among his his many sources on the right stuff was was Pete Conrad. I know that for a fact, and it's a great book, and I I think it was very inspiring. But the stuff about Gus and Liberty Bell Seven and Gus panicking and Gus hitting the chicken switch is fiction. It never happened. Why would somebody who had just been launched in a, 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 a ballistic missile, flown a ballistic trajectory, turned around, which is very disorienting if you've never done it before, uh, been weightless for about five minutes, uh, messed around with your controls, and then you, you you hit your retro rockets and you start coming down, and you're pulling about uh, eight or nine Gs on the way down. You know, Can you, can you imagine the uh, how turbulent that must have been? And then your drogue chute comes out, and then your main chute comes out, and uh, Gus reports, uh, you guys might want to note that there's a triangular tear in my main chute. You know, he just he just reports it matter-of-factly. And then he splashes down and hits the water. Well, if anything, he would have been relieved, not panicked. I mean, you know, he, he and, he and Shepard both heard thought they heard water gurgling into the spacecraft, but... Uh, they didn't panic about that as either. So Gus made one error. The reason he made the error was, I think, because they didn't really practice their recovery procedures uh, very much. Gus had a passing familiarity with how this exploding hatch on his spacecraft worked, right? I should have said 
They they lobbied for a bigger window on Gus's ship, and they wanted an exploding hatch because that's what test pilots were used to, right? If you got trouble, you could punch out. So what he was supposed to do was when the recovery helicopter came in and hooked onto the spacecraft, he was to pull a cotter pin and arm the exploding hatch. And once the helicopter had lifted the spacecraft out of the water so that the sill on his window was above the waterline, he would hit the plunger and blow the hatch, and there'd be a, a horse collar waiting for him. So he decides, I'm going to arm the hatch. I want to be ready. I'm a little bit ahead of my timeline. And he's marking his switch positions, and he says, you know, give me five minutes. I want to record all this stuff and then come on in and hook hook onto me, and then I'll blow the hatch. So he does all this. He's 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 armed the hatch, and and this this is my the theory in my book is that when Jim Lewis, the helicopter, the main helicopter pilot, and his co-pilot John Reinhardt come in, they've got to snip this uh, antenna so so Lewis can drop down, and the hatch is armed, and it's a very warm day in July, right? Eric, water temperature is about 85 degrees. John Reinhardt, the guy in da, down below who's going to hook onto the spacecraft, the person closest to the spacecraft when it happened said that when he touched Liberty Bell 7 with his hook, he saw a spark. He saw an arc. And at that moment, the hatch blew. So Electrostatic the, discharge. Electrostatic discharge. They didn't, it, it wasn't grounded. And and the standard procedure for the Coast Guard and the Navy now is you would never do that. You'd always ground it first. And that was not done. So that's as, just as likely an explanation for why the hatch blew as any of the other possibilities, like the, the lanyard that was sticking out of the exterior of the spacecraft. But the bottom line is that Gus, it's it's possible, and even he admitted that he could have bumped the plunger and the, I think the plunger took about five pounds of pressure to to go off. But Wally Shira and Deke and the others always said that this plunger, this detonator, had a nasty kick, and that Wally said that when he hit it and he hit it on the deck because they never repeated this recovery procedure again, he said it cut right through his glove because of the recoil, and he always pointed out Gus didn't have that on his hand so the film is particularly bad it shows gus in the spacecraft and he's and he's he's getting uh, he's breathing heavily and it makes it look like he's panicking for some reason it never happened it was fiction and part of my part of the reason i wanted to do the book was to to clear up this myth now the question is you yeah. mentioned eleanor there's there's going to be a remake of the right stuff. Leo DiCaprio's production company is filming it right now. I am in touch with an actor named Michael Trotter, who is playing Gus Grissom. And I've had the chance to speak with Michael extensively. He's read my book. He's familiar with the, the great responsibility he has to finally correct the record here. I'm heartened by the fact that they're going to include the women 
who also qualified yeah. for Mercury. Yeah. Was it 13? I think there were 13. They're going to be included in this story. So uh, that, I, I take that as a good sign that they're going to do, it's going to be a revisionist history. They're going to include everybody this time, not just, you know, these seven guys in their silver suits marching along with the, with the, with the heroic music and get it right. So uh, I'm hopeful that uh, Michael Trotter will do will do uh, justice by Gus. Uh, I know that he feels a great great responsibility, and I've tried to uh, um, educate him as much as I can as to what you know to the best of our knowledge we think may have happened. So I'm 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 optimistic that this program will, will, will get it right and will correct the record. We hope you enjoyed the continuation of our interview with George Leopold. Tune in for the conclusion of our discussion with George on our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.